you have your Bibles, turn with me to our scripture reading this morning, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 5. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 5. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Let me make two quick announcements as we get started this morning. Number one, this evening, uh, for our evening service, we're going to have a prayer service. It's been a while since we've done one of these, but the, the emphasis of the service will be on prayers. We will also uh, have scripture readings and songs and, and a brief devotional, but we encourage you to come back tonight as we engage in that prayer service. And for those who have been asked to lead prayers or participate in that service, Tom Algieri requests that you gather with him in the cry room immediately after this service so he can uh, go over some things with you. So please make plans to stick around for that. And then also I want to let our men uh, be aware that we are approaching our men's weekend, March 24th and 25th. Of course, we've got to get past ladies' retreat first. But men, uh, be sure to put that on your calendars. Friday, March 24th, Saturday, March 25th, our men's weekend. Friday night's going to be a fellowship. Saturday's going to be our time of study with uh, Lonnie Jones coming to town to speak to us. So please make plans to join us for that. With those announcements out of the way, I want to tell you about these two elderly, upper-class women who were quite snobbish and really didn't like one another. On one particular evening, they ran into each other at a, uh, an event of some sort, and one of the women was wearing a, a, a very nice pearl necklace, and the other woman approached her in a very rude and, and very obnoxious tone said, Are those real pearls? And the lady wearing the pearl said, of course they are. And the, the lady who questioned their authenticity said, well, the only way I would be able to know that they were real is if I bit them. And the lady wearing the pearls responded, well, in order to do that, you would need your real teeth. <laughs> you know, the thing is, one preacher pointed out that in our culture, we often pass off the fake as real. Think about it. Whether it's fake jewelry that we wear, a knockoff handbag that we purchase, an artificial plant that we decorate with, or a social media post, post that we stage, we are quite comfortable with that which is fake. And for the most part, we approach such inauthenticity with a no harm, no foul mentality. But sometimes a moral line is crossed when the fake is presented as real, such as when you use counterfeit money or you engage in identity theft. But there's nothing that is more reprehensible or more harmful than when people accept and promote fake gods. And yet that might be the most popular sin the sin of idolatry. When you hear the term idolatry, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about the golden calf incident on Mount Sinai. 
So when you hear the term idolatry, you automatically think about sculptor, sculpted figurines and objects that represent a deity. And so you assume that since you have no such figurines in your possession, then you're not guilty of idolatry. Or maybe when you think about idolatry, you envision those towns that Paul visited on his missionary journeys and those massive temples that were erected to honor and to worship those Greco-Roman deities. And you assume that since you do not go to such a temple or worship a pagan deity, then you're not guilty of idolatry either. This association of idolatry with physical objects and physical locations is so pervasive that one online dictionary defines idolatry simply as the worship of a physical object as a god. So if your concept of idolatry is limited to physical objects, then it would be easy for you to conclude that idolatry is not a sin with which you struggle as long as you don't possess any golden calves or go to any pagan temples. But idolatry is not limited to representations of deities or locations where they are worshipped. Idolatry can happen at any time and in any place among anyone. And I believe that's why the New Testament has so many anti-idolatry instructions. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul instructed his readers to not be idolaters in chapter 10 and verse 7. To not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is an idolater, chapter 5 and verse 11. And to flee from idolatry in chapter 10 and verse 14. You can go over to the book of Colossians, and in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says that we should put to death what is earthly in you, and among the list of those items he includes is idolatry. And then John, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, concludes his text by saying, keep yourselves from idols. The very last words of his first epistle. What I want to do this morning is explore how idolatry manifests itself in our lives today. Because as I mentioned earlier, I think it might be the most common sin. Because to some degree, idolatry is present in every sin. Here's what I mean. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he escorted them to Mount Sinai. And when they arrived at Mount Sinai, the first thing God does is he gives them the law, starting with the Ten Commandments. We read the first couple of commandments a moment ago, but I want to turn back to that text, Exodus chapter 20, and look at verse 1 through 5 again. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 5. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Ten Commandments begin with the command to have no other gods before the one God. And most of the time, 
we assume that that commandment, paired with the one to not have any carved images, is the extent of the anti-idolatry emphasis in the Ten Commandments. But in reality, the, the command to worship God alone is the basis for all other commands. That's why it's the first one. All the other commands existed to keep the Israelites from engaging in idolatry. And so while Mosaic Law begins with the command to have no other gods before the one true God, ultimately that's setting up the rest of all the commands to understand that our relationship with God must be singular. Think about it. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Maybe it existed to keep the Israelites from making work their God. And the sixth command, you shall not murder, existed to keep the Israelites from making power and control their God. That seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Maybe it existed to keep the Israelites from making sex their God. Or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Maybe they existed to keep the Israelites from making possessions their God. In other words, the entire Mosaic law was designed to ensure that God alone was worshipped. And this really becomes evident when you get to the New Testament. And Jesus was asked, which commandment is the most important of all? And he responds to that question by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he's quoting. He's quoting from Mosaic Law. He's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 to be specific. And the point is that Jesus summarized the goal of the entire Old Testament, of the entire Ten Commandments, of the entire Mosaic Law, by saying that the whole thing is designed to help us love God and prioritize Him above everything else. That's the objective of the law. And it implies that anything less then wholehearted devotion to the Lord is tantamount to idolatry. And that's because idolatry occurs whenever we give our affection to something other than God. See, the truth is, idolatry doesn't just occur when people bow down to physical objects. Idolatry occurs whenever a person gives their heart to someone or something other than God himself. That means idolatry is not an external worship of something other than God. It's an internal devotion to something other than God. When God spoke to Ezekiel about the idolatry of the Israelite elders, he said these men have taken their idols into their hearts. He was indicating that their idolatry was an internal problem, not an external problem. And then when God spoke to Isaiah about the Israelites. He said the Israelites would draw near to him with their mouth and honor him with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts were far from him. In other words, they looked like they were devoted to God and they acted like they were devoted to God, but in reality, their affections were set on someone or something else. And if you journey back to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 8, you find out that their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. What God is communicating 
through the prophet Isaiah is that the people's hearts have been removed because they have found other things to worship. Their hearts are distant from him because they've been given over to something else. And since idolatry is an internal rather than an external issue, anything can become our idol. It can be an object. It can be a person. It can be a relationship. It can be an achievement. It can be an attitude or an ideology. It can be a substance or a feeling or an opportunity or an experience. Anything that can consume our hearts can become an idol. That's why there is so much emphasis placed on the heart in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus warned that our hearts are attached to our treasures when he said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus indicated that the source of all evil things is that which comes from within, out of the heart of man, in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. And Jesus also taught that you cannot serve two masters because you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other, in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. The point is that most of the time, idolatry is the result of misplaced affections. And that's why God said it elicits his jealousy. Returning to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you see that God gives his reasoning for eliminating the worship of other gods. His reason is because I, the Lord, your God, am jealous. What does that mean? Because we associate jealousy with a negative attribute, with something that you shouldn't have. But there is an appropriate time for jealousy, an appropriate context for jealousy. When the Lord says, I am a jealous God, that means he's unwilling to share our affection with anyone or anything else. He wants our undivided attention. He wants our undivided love. He wants our undivided devotion. That's why his relationship with us is consistently associated with marriage. When he uses the prophet Hosea to communicate to the people something about his relationship with them, he uses a literal marriage to communicate that. When the church is identified in the New Testament, it's identified as the bride of Christ. The marriage metaphor is used to depict our relationship with God. Because that's how God feels about us. He's like a devoted husband who's unwilling to share his wife's affection with anyone else. And that's a justifiable jealousy. The question you really have to consider yourself is, do you return that affection? So consider for a moment whether or not there's an idol in your life. One of the best ways to determine whether or not you have an idol is by taking a close look at your bank account and your calendar. That on which you have set your affection is likely to receive prioritization among your two most valuable resources, time and money. When it comes to determining how your money is spent, what receives first consideration? When it comes to how your time is spent, what receives first reservation? 
If the answer to either of those questions is something other than God, then you may need to consider the possibility that you have taken an idol into your heart. Because idolatry occurs when we give our affection to something other than God. But idolatry also occurs whenever we give God's glory to something created. If you look at Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, God's not willing to share what is rightfully his. His glory is rightfully his, and he's not going to share that. All glory belongs to him. And what God is saying to Israel through Isaiah is, I will not let you hijack my story. I will not let you recast yourself or anything else as the star. I'm not going to give my glory up. But all too often, that's what we do. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Satan convinced the first humans that they could replace God with something, that they could put something else in God's position. Because if you look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5, the serpent told Adam and Eve, God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. In, the, in those words, Satan essentially placed in the human mind the question, why can't I get the glory? Why can't I be the center of everything? Why can't my agenda be the most important? And that pursuit of the glory that belongs solely to God still happens today. We disobey his commands because we want to be our own God or our own decider of what's right and wrong, our own director of our own lives. But what we end up doing in the process is making the worst trade ever. Now, there's been a lot of bad trades throughout history. I want to give you my top bad trades in history. Number one, Jacob and Esau. Esau has the birthright. That means when inheritance time rolls around, he gets twice as much as Jacob. But one day Esau comes in from uh, his hunt, and he's starving. And he gives up the right to a double portion of the inheritance for some stew. Now, I've had some good soup in my life. And I've been really hungry at times in my life. But I'm not going to give up that much wealth for a bowl of stew. I'll eat some grass if I have to. That was a bad trade. Another bad trade occurred in 1803. When Napoleon traded the Louisiana Purchase for $15 million. Now that sounds like a lot of money. Especially back in 1803. But essentially, the U.S. acquired the rights. Of course, it wasn't really. There's issues with stuff. But anyway, the U.S. acquired the rights to the land at $18 per square mile. They got over 800000 square miles of land at $18 per square mile, and they got territory 
that eventually became 14 different states, or at least parts of 14 different states. In 1836, one of those states named Arkansas came into the Union. You can't get any better than that. But that was a bad trade on Napoleon's part, and wasn't there wasn't too long after that that he was deposed anyway. There's another bad trade that occurred in 1920 when the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $100,000 so that the owner of the Red Sox could finance his latest Broadway play. If you know anything about sports history, you know that from there, the Red Sox went through an 86-year drought in the, of winning the World Series. Meanwhile, Babe Ruth led the Yankees to four World Series titles, and be, it became the most dominant franchise in baseball history. That title used to belong to the Boston Red Sox because prior to the trade, they had won a third of the World Series to that point. But then they went through that long curse, they called it. That was a bad trade. Another bad trade happened in 2018 when the Gwinnett Braves became the Gwinnett Stripers. You know why this is a bad trade? Because last year, Scott Sitton invited me to a Braves game, and, and, and we went to the game, but I, I needed to remind Sarah that we were going to the game, so I texted her that afternoon, and I said, hey, don't forget, I'm going to watch the Stripers with Scott this afternoon. Your phone, your smartphone, doesn't recognize the word stripers. <laughs> it autocorrects and adds a second P in that word. And so I texted my wife, unknowingly saying that me and one of the shepherds of this congregation are going to a very unseemly location that would get me fired. That's why it's a bad trade. But there's no worse trade than this. Look at Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, why was the wrath of God revealed? Look at verse 21. Because although men knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead, according to verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul describes idolatry as the worst possible trade, trading the glory of the creator for the glory of the created. And here's the thing. We exchange that glory when we elevate other things to a preeminent spot in our lives. King Saul worshipped the God called now when he made those sacrifices in Samuel's absence because he elevated immediacy above obedience. Jonah worshipped the God called identity when he elevated his nationalism ahead of his mission. Martha worshipped the God called work when she elevated her hostess duties ahead of her time with the Lord. Peter worshipped the God called popularity when he hypocritically chose to not fellowship with Gentiles when Jews were present. And that rich fool in a parable Jesus told worshipped the God called more by building bigger barns because he elevated accumulation ahead of stewardship. We are guilty of doing the same thing. 
when God gets pushed to a secondary position in our lives, when we elevate something to a greater position of, of importance in our lives, we have exchanged the glory of God for something created. And here's the thing. God is not going to stop us from doing it. God will let you chase your idols. Because three times in Romans chapter 1, in the passage we were just looking at, the text says God gave them up. He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. In other words, Paul is saying that God let those individuals pursue their heart's desire. God's not going to stop you. That's why in the parable of the lost son, the father let the son go. God has given you this great thing called freedom of choice. God allows you to decide whether or not you're going to give him the glory or you're going to make a bad trade. That was the case with the, with the rich young ruler, wasn't it? His idol was wealth. So when Jesus said, sell what, you're, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful. And Jesus didn't stop him. Because God will let you chase your idols. But here's the thing. God will always be distant as long as idols are present. As long as we have other functional gods in our lives, we can expect our relationship with the one true God to be distant. In fact, that's exactly what God told the Israelites through the prophet Ezekiel. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 14 earlier where God had told Ezekiel that the elders of Israel had taken their idols into their hearts in verse 3. And the consequence of that decision was that they were estranged from God, the text says, estranged from God through their idols, Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 5. That's what happens. When you take other idols into your heart, you estrange yourself from God. I'm reminded of a story I heard about a little girl who purchased a, a fake pearl necklace at a flea market with her allowance. And she loved that necklace. She wore the, that pearl necklace everywhere she went. She never took it off. And every night her dad would read her a bedtime story before he put her to bed. And one night, after reading that story, he said, do you love me? And she said, yes, Daddy, I love you. He said, give me your pearl. She said, no, Daddy, anything but my pearls. She said, I'll give you my favorite stuffed animal, but not my pearls. He told her that wouldn't be necessary. He tucked her into bed, gave her a kiss, and said, I love you. A week later or so, same scenario repeated itself he asked for a pearl she said no daddy not my pearl she offered her favorite toy he told her that's not necessary tucked her in kissed her goodnight and said i love you 
But sometime later, he came into her room and she was sitting up in her bed. Her lip was trembling and her eyes were watering. And before he could say anything, she held out her hand and said, Daddy, I love you, and gave him her fake pearls. And that's when he reached into his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet box and gave her her first string of real pearls. See, you can't have a relationship with the real God when you're holding on to the fake one. Your only option is to worship either God alone or to pursue your idols. So like the Israelites before they enter the promised land, you have a choice to make. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of this world or the Lord God. The choice is yours. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This morning, we're reminded of the very first command, the command that really affects all other commands. And we're, we're, we're reminded that idolatry isn't a past problem. It is a present problem. Because some of us are worshiping something other than God. And if you need to repent of that today, we offer this invitation. Turn away from those idols. Change what you worship. And if you need to respond to that invitation today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Amen.